A quick warning before we start this episode, my interview today contains references to violence that some listeners may find upsetting. How does a long-standing conflict turn into peace? Whether it's a grudge between two individuals or a violent conflict between two groups, what can people within that conflict or outside of it do to break that cycle and start to move towards a peaceful coexistence. The first step is really to recognize your own complicity because it's very rare for a, a conflict to be down purely to one side. And then recognizing that that person on the other side of the wall is also a flawed person. They're not perfect. They've done things wrong as well, but they are a fellow human being. I'm Jake Lloyd. You're listening to the How to Build Community Show, and that's the voice of David Cousins, who is the peacebuilding lead at Tearfund. His job is to identify, support, and train people around the world to be peacebuilders in the communities where they live. And in this episode, he talks me through some of the steps that need to be taken to break the cycle of conflict and to forge a lasting peace. But David began by telling me about the surprising route he took into his current role. My background, somewhat weirdly perhaps, is um, the military. So I spent um, almost 30 years working in the British Army, during which time I I had a couple of deployments to Afghanistan. And um, I found I was watching what we were doing in Afghanistan. And despite huge resources, despite genuinely good intentions and a desire to do do the best for Afghanistan, I could just see how little impact we were having. And it just became clear to me that this sort of militarised attempt to impose peace or to create peace through violence just doesn't work. And at the time, I was reading a load of stuff from um, from John Paul Lederach, who's a, a sort of a conflict transformation um, expert, and it just made so much more sense. So I left the military, joined Tier Fund, and then... Um, we created a small peacebuilding team, very much guided really by Isaiah 61. There's that sort of well-known passage um, that Jesus himself quotes, and it talks about um, um, you know, binding up the brokenhearted, releasing the, the claiming freedom for the prisoners, um, and supporting those who mourn, those who grieve. Uh, and that's the first part of that Isaiah 61 chapter. But it then goes on to say, they will be oaks of righteousness and they will be the ones that rebuild, restore and renew. And so we very much see our role at Tear Fund really as sort of looking for those people who are those oaks of righteousness, those people who are trying to build um, peace in their communities, people who've experienced all those things, the, the reality of conflict, because I think they are the best people to bring peace. They've experienced it. They know it. They're there on the ground. And so really our our role is to try and encourage, support them in in whichever way that we can. So what does this role involve? We train people up in a whole load of tools. Um, It's a sort of experiential training process, which um, really draws on their own experiences and provides them some sort of tools to think about what they've experienced and how they might sort of navigate a way through that. So we train up those people and they then hold these sort of conversations back in their communities um, which takes their communities through a process of just thinking about how they think about um, violent conflict, how they think about the traumas and, that they've experienced, how they can find ways to navigate that and sort of find a way to to, to resolve those um, those conflicts and really re-establish relationships. 
and and so that's very much what we're we're, we're trying to encourage and and trying to connect people and trying to restore those relationships between people that may be living in fear and suspicion of each other and often often for for very good reasons as well David recently wrote an article for Footsteps magazine about breaking the cycle of violence. In it, he identified the critical importance of bringing what he calls people's hidden hurts out into the open. So I asked him to explain what he means by hidden hurts. And he told me this story. One of our our tier fund staff in Nigeria has just recounted this um, story to me uh, of her own experience. And we were we were doing some training with her and, and sharing one of the tools. And she came up to me in the coffee break and said, I've done this. I've done this. I've used this and it works. And um, she was a, a, a Christian woman um, from um, northern Nigeria. And the village where she lived had been attacked by a, a Muslim group and she had had to flee. And she and her family were unhurt, but um, their home and all their possessions were sort of burnt to the ground. And not surprisingly, she was harboring you know, a lot of fear, a lot of hurt, a lot of trauma, uh, and a lot of hatred of the group that ad- attacked her. And so she was hugely suspicious of Muslims in general and blamed them for what had happened you know, as a group as to what had happened to her. And she was then enrolled in this um, uh, this this training course run by a different organisation. Was going through this tool we were talking about, and she was paired with um, a Muslim woman. And as part of this training, they each had to share their sort of experiences. And so this lady went first and sort of told her story. And you know, she recounts saying how she felt. Huh, take that! Look what you've done to me. How can you? Yeah, you know, how awful you are. And then the Muslim woman told her story, and her story was very similar, very similar. Her village had been attacked, only she hadn't just lost her home. Um, a couple of her family members had actually been killed. And as uh, as as Caroline heard this story, she realised that uh, they were both suffering very similar things. And this woman had suffered far more, far more than she had. Um, far more than she had, as, as Caroline said. You know, I lost possessions, I lost assets. She lost, she lost family, uh, and she realised that actually, yeah, they were going through very common shared experiences in many ways, and so recognising those hidden hurts and and the fact that those hurts were shared meant that rather than sort of standing on opposite sides of a sort of a big with a big wall between them sort of um demonizing the other she began to see her as a fellow human being uh, a fellow woman who had suffered who had um experienced horrific things and trauma and actually rather than standing on either side of this wall they were actually both standing on the the same side um looking if you like at the horror and they realised that actually they weren't enemies. They were they were sort of fellow fellow victims, fellow survivors. And from that, they, they built a relationship. She, she then began to help help in the work that she was doing. Um, so I think often when you you see the other person as a person rather than as a group, and those hidden hurts get shared, you begin to see the sort of fellow the the common humanity with each other. Uh, and a way through, a way through the the trauma, the suffering, and, and and the conflict. And in in this instance, there was presumably a third party 
um, an outsider, if you like, who had arranged this uh, this meeting, this event. How, how important, in your experience, is this this third party, this outsider, in 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 creating this space for? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think yeah. There's I I don't know the details of the, of the exact project that she went through, but um, yeah, you've got to have a space where it, you feel safe to share. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned is that um, you know I come from a very sort of task orientated background, and so if I'm sort of holding some training or something, I've got a whole series of stuff that we need to get through. We need to get through that, and the, and the program becomes packed, and um, and you know I start to panic if we're sort of ten minutes behind on the program or whatever. Um, and what I've learned is that actually it's the relationship that matters, and therefore you've got to spend time up front creating a space where you begin to get to know each other you can begin to just understand who each other is where they're coming from uh, and that you can be real with each other you can you can begin to be honest about how you're feeling and that that takes time to grow it doesn't happen immediately and and the time that you invest up front in building those relationships um is absolutely vital because if you don't do that you're probably not going any further or you're not getting to any depth and you need to get deep so I think, yeah, it's 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 the location. It's a place where both both people feel safe. It's a a time of day as well, a day of the week where where you feel safe, and it's having people that you trust who can hold that space for you. There's a weird thing in our sort of theology of peace building. Um, we we build on the work of some of the um, stuff that a guy called Henry Nowen um, wrote, and he talks about hospitality and providing a hospitable place and and somewhat weirdly he sort of says it's a place where you don't impose an agenda so there are rules about how you interact with each other but you're not there with an agenda and therefore you let what comes into that space come into that space it's non-judgmental people bring what they bring and you don't judge you're not trying to convert or, or or anything else you're just trying to provide a space where people can share safely about their real feelings there's a previous episode of our podcast about learning from failure um yeah. and you, you, the instance you've described then was you know a success but presumably you've uh, seen or been around instances where somebody's tried to set up this space for dialogue and they've allowed time um for it to happen but but it's it's not gone well um can you can you think of examples and can you think of lessons that you learned from those examples uh, yeah, I mean, I think not gone well is sometimes that just people won't engage. They're not ready to engage. Sometimes I think you have to do um, work beforehand with each party before you even try and bring them together. So quite often with the training, we might train people from different communities in different venues before we even attempt to bring them together, just to sort of get people to a sort of a, a common starting point, I think. Because, yeah, because if you don't, I mean, you, there is a risk that you can just deepen, deepen difficulties. There's a lot in the skill of the facilitator, I think, in in, in thinking through how you you manage disagreement when that when that happens. But it's um, it is not easy and you do need to, to go sensitively and you need to do some work in advance in trying to really understand what are the dynamics of this. So you can be aware of them as you, as you start. You know, where are people coming from? Where is the hurt? Um, what is the history of this? How is it seen by different different parties beforehand? So you can, you know, you can go in with. You'll never have all the knowledge, but you can go in more informed 
as to what those sort of conflict dynamics are, what the potential sources of tension are and and where people might be coming from. So you're not going in blind or, 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 or ignorant. He then told me another story from his work. We, we have one example from the Democratic Republic of Congo where we were doing this training with groups um, from a number of villages and, and those villages really did not mix. They would not mix. And to the extent that one village in particular would not go near another because if they did, um, there would be violence and, and uh, a chance that people would be killed. But we took people from those communities. We did bring them into one space to do the training. And through that, they, they developed a relationship and a level of trust just through through engaging that and through the exercises. And the result just after, I think, about six months was that not only were they actually going into each other's villages, passing through, they were actually doing business with each other. I think they'd even started football matches against each other. And it's just because they began to see each other as fellow human beings suffering very similar things and therefore the benefits for them were in were in working together to resolve this they could see actually it was a win-win for both of them to to resolve this and and not addressing those issues was um was harming both of them and i think that's a, a position that that they can see much more clearly than we can the sort of the experience of 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 pain and suffering that comes comes through that is this kind of process of reconciliation is it a process that can happen and then it's complete and then everyone's happy um or does it need to always be going on um, no i think it i think it's something that always goes on i think i mean there's a number of uh, of elements to it as well i mean it, we haven't really talked about justice and accountability and and forgiveness comes into that as well i guess um people want justice they want accountability that's not necessarily sort of punishing everybody but but there is an element of that and one of the the difficulties is at what point does does justice come to play and what form does justice take you know sometimes um you won't get far unless those who've been aggrieved and hurt have some form of justice there needs to be some holding to account for for actions that are taken and, and that's difficult because that can sometimes upset the relationship that you're building so the order and timing and the form of that justice and that accountability is really, really complex and, and is something that I think just has to be worked through. And, and quite often you may see that that justice comes later that, that or, or you may just find a form of sort of accountability of truth telling up front with some form of, of justice. But it's how you bring that into it that um, I think is 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 really important to one of the the hardest bits because you can't just say to somebody who's seen their family um brutally slaughtered they just need to reconcile with that person and all will be well because it won't people need to be held accountable for their actions but in a way that builds relationship rather than damages it further and that's that's not always a, an easy thing to navigate and is often one of the the trickiest parts of any peace process you're talking about justice and people feel a need for justice and at the same time you know your christian faith is a key driver of what you do and christianity talks a lot about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness is there a bit of a conflict there between that desire for justice um, and also forgiveness can that sometimes be are we going to set justice aside and um, you can you get get away with this one? 
Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, there's um, Psalm 85 verse 10, um, which I just try to think and quote, but I can't. Um, but it's basically sort of truth and mercy. It, it, it brings together truth, mercy, justice and peace. Uh, and it talks about them as sort of almost human beings that have met and embraced and kissed. And there is that tension between the demand for justice and the, the, the and the cry for mercy. Um, I think with forgiveness, I'm I'm very wary of, particularly within Christian circles, because we have this sort of sense of duty that oh, we must forgive. You know, it's in the Lord's Prayer, but you cannot force forgiveness. Forgiveness has to come in its own time. And um, I, I've spoken with with people who were in the, the Rwandan genocide, and, and they've talked about forgiveness. And what they say is that that you can you can make a conscious decision to forgive. A sort of a, a cerebral academic mind sort of oh I'm going to forgive them but it's a long time before that becomes part of your heart if you like you know the the journey from head to heart in that and a number of people said this takes about a decade so forgiveness is not something that comes necessarily quickly and I think we have to be very wary of trying to sort of cajole people particularly if we're sort of christians into feeling they have to forgive otherwise they're not a proper christian i think i think forgiveness comes when you're ready to forgive and and as part of forgiveness is also a recognition from the other person that that they need to make amends for what they've done in some form and that that may well be in some form of justice so it's not sort of un- totally unconditional forgiveness there is a sort of expectation that that you will put right what you have done as best you can if you are the sort of the perpetrator and you may not always be able to to but you need to make some effort towards that i think what would you say to someone who's listening to this who is perhaps part of some kind of conflicts large or small with someone else in the community they live in what 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 would you advise them where 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 should they start what, what should they do somebody once shared with me the idea that when you're in conflict what tends to happen is it's as if there's sort of two people standing each side of a wall and both of them are projecting a sort of dehumanized version of the other onto that wall. So you're both seeing each other as some form of sort of dehumanized beast. And that makes you feel better because it sort of, to a certain extent, justifies your way of thinking and your behaviors, but you don't get anywhere. That just sustains the conflict. So the first step is really to, I I think recognize your own complicity because it's very rare for a a conflict to be down purely to one side. You know, we all will have done something to contribute to that. And so just reflecting on our own fallibility, our own sort of flaws and our own humanity, basically, and then recognizing that that person, the other side of the wall is also a flawed person. They're not perfect. They've done things wrong as well. But they are a fellow human being. And as Christians, you know, they too are created in God's image and therefore beginning to try and see that person as a fellow human being rather than the stories we say about them. I think that's probably one of the most important first steps. And then as and when you can try to reestablish direct communications with them, it may be through third parties initially, but try to talk directly and in a safe place and begin to share each other's hurts. And then when you do that, you begin to see them as other human beings, fellow human beings, brothers and sisters, often sharing very similar, very similar experiences. And from that, you can then begin to navigate a way through it and out of it. 
but the first bit i think is is look to yourself and then recognize the the, the shared humanity that you have with those um on the other side and i think the other thing i'd say is when we do the dehumanizing we immediately group people together and and we sort of start saying they're all like that they're all like that everyone in that group is like that and that's just simply not true um it, you know it's never true there are people in that group who may have done horrific things and may do her be inclined to do horrific things again but that's not all of them uh, and most of those people are probably just uh, much like you trying to keep their heads down trying to survive and not doing horrible things and don't necessarily wish any harm to you so so look for those people and 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 try and sort of build relationships with them cautiously but as you do that you just begin to 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 recreate a shared a shared humanity um across those groups under what circumstances would you say advise someone when you're ready go and speak to directly to this person and under what circumstances should actually maybe they should seek out that third party who can who can help mediate i i think safety is 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 a key one you've got to feel you've got to be able to go somewhere where you feel safe where where it is safe for both of you um to do that and so it could be that you have um, again, those third-party conversations. I think quite often we found that um, faith leaders um, can can bridge those gaps. Sometimes, you know, they are able to speak to other faith leaders and and begin to build those conversations. Uh, and quite often, very quietly behind the scenes as well. Because I think when you start reaching out to people from uh, the other side, your own side can be very suspicious of you. Um, you know, they too may have suffered terrible trauma, terrible pain, terrible suffering, and they may be very unhappy with you beginning to reach out that way. So I, I think you need to go slowly, carefully, uh, and you know, don't rush into things and just be aware of the pain and suffering on all sides and that, that this is fragile. But keep going, keep going, just take it slowly, step at a time, uh, and just keep trying to build that relationship, I think. Um. I feel like we're just scratching the surface in some ways of this topic. But if people listening to this want to go deeper, where, where would you point them? Where, where, where are the good resources? Um, well, I think there's um, there is the Footsteps publication. Um, the, the the latest um, version coming out talks about some of these these issues. Um, there's also on the Tier Fund um, Tier Fund Learn. Um, we've got a, a virtually all our people. These building resources are available on there, um, and and through that you can also access our um, uh, tier fund conflict prevention um, platform through which we we we're forming a community of practice where people can share experiences, um, ask for ask for advice, uh, and access resources through that. Um, so so that's probably a, a, as good a place to start um, uh, to start as any. Um, I would suggest. That was David Cousins, the peace building lead at Tier Funds. And that's almost it for this episode. Before we go, don't forget you can catch up on previous episodes of How to Build Community online or in your podcast player. Just search How to Build Community. You can learn more about Aruka Network at arukanetwork.org. And you can read and download every edition of Tier Funds Footsteps magazine at learn.tierfund.org including a recent edition on peace and reconciliation. You can also sign up to receive footsteps via WhatsApp or email, free of charge. But that's it for this episode. Until next time, 
goodbye for now. <laughs>